listening to the Broadcast Basement On Demand Radio Network. It's the podcast in the Broadcast Basement. Broadcastbasement.com. Welcome to episode 42 of Cinemental. How can you talk if you haven't got a brain? I don't know. But some people without brains do an awful lot of talking. Then why don't you kiss me like everybody else does? How about new? The thing is, Bob, it's not that I'm lazy. It's that I just don't care. I came here like this so you'll know my word of death is true. And that my word of life is then true. everyone, welcome to another episode of the movie podcast that we can only help you enjoy listening to as much as we enjoy making. My name is Stephen Hovicki, and as always, I'm here with my co-hosts, Hassan Godwin and Latham Conger III. Our, our guest today studied film at Seton Hall. He then wrote and directed three independent films before creating an award-winning web series called Haywire, in which, as it so happens, I had a small part playing Dan, a package delivery man who, let's just say, gets affected. He's currently the video producer for a convention company, Comic-Con Revolution, and my friend, Scott Klein. Welcome to Cinemental. Guys, honored to be here. Thank you very much. Thank you uh, for being here. Uh, so uh, I've known Scott about as long as I've known Hassan. Uh, we all used to work at Wizard together. Uh, Scott and Hassan go back further than that. And um, I was just, uh, you know, I was trying to think today, Scott, how many, how many episodes of Haywire am I in? Is it four? It's got to be at least four. Because I know I had, I was in the, in, I was in the launch episode. I was in the first episode. I was, I had footage in the forest that we shot with the, the fall off the cliff. Mm-hmm. Then there was the gazebo mm-hmm. with Gabe. And then there was the swimming pool with Gabe. Right. What about the bridge scene? That was the same episode as one of the others, wasn't it? The one we shot near your home on the bridge. Oh, the bridge. I forgot about the bridge. Um, I don't, I'm not, I can't remember if that was in the same episode. So it's either four or five episodes I'm in. That might've been in the same episode as the swimming pool. And uh, are there any other people who did that web series who even did other than Gabe, uh, (laughs) who did any real stunts at all? Mm-hmm. In Haywire, uh, wow! I wouldn't go so long, please. I wouldn't call anything else a stunt. <laughs> I, and, and by that, I mean like you literally got a bloody nose. Well, I mean, Gabe hit me in the face with a book. He so punched I mean... you in the face. He hit you in the face with a book, and then he did it <clears throat> again. Yeah, yeah. It, but it looks great. I just saw it again recently, and that shot came out great. Well, because he drew blood. Well. <laughs> 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 and then, uh, and then, obviously, the the my still uh, still to this day, the the one that I everyone loves is the 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 stair thing from the very first episode. The, yeah, you uh, diving down a get, flight of stairs. Yeah, they're the getting hit by the iron and going down a flight of stairs. But uh, but yeah, so if if anyone wants to go and and look up uh, the web series Haywire, uh, and uh, it's how many total episodes? Uh, it's it's three. I think we got up to three seasons. It's like twenty, something like that. Yeah. And it's uh, it, you can find it on YouTube if you search. Yeah, it. yeah. If you just do a search for uh, Haywire web series, it it comes right up. And actually, it's funny because somebody on one of the review sites, 
if you actually, if you do a search for, uh, if you do a search for Haywire, and maybe it is Haywire web series, um, and you go to images on Google, the very first image is a still somebody took uh, of their screen with the, the, you know, like the, the video player in it. And it's paused on a scene from the first episode of me as Dan, as I'm walking up to the house to deliver the package. So like before I'd been changed. Who in the world did that? Uh, Thunder something. Oh boy. It was a review (laughs) site. It was like Thunder pants or something i don't know were they trying to deter people from watching the show oh i don't know with a name like thunder is i could go go poor isn't that a bad steven soderbergh movie too there was a film called haywire yeah first of all no because it's got cara dune in it so just (laughs) stop yourself (laughs) okay my bad the hot chick saved the movie that's right and she's a badass not just (laughs) she's a badass yeah okay uh, yeah. Any, <laughs> anywho. Uh, so I know how many episodes of Haywire I'm in. <laughs> anyway, you are in what three of my other films, though? Oh, you're in the other films there, oh, tough guy. You've been black hatted, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Scott can black hat you. Um, I think he can get all three of us in one episode. He's just got to get Steve. Steve say something appropriate. <laughs> yeah, didn't him. he already black hat me before he started? Um, Sons in at least two of my films, and he's also on a flyer in one of my films as the band leader of a band called Hassan and the Perpetrators. <laughs> awesome. Yes, I am. It's like a Hitchcock cameo. He's on a flyer. Yeah, that makes up for it. That makes up for it. That band is still together. I'm I'm kidding. (laughs) (laughs) It's just the perpetrators now. They got rid of that Hassan guy, right? But they're still together. They're just the blowfish. Yes. Yeah, it's like it's like Nine Inch Nails. Um, so uh, I, I guess we'll suffer from consumption. So uh, just a couple of quick uh, news bits that have come out in the past few days. Hey, did you do the start for the show? Am I miss forgetting? Yeah, he did. Yeah, you you, you must have slept through that. Have you had? Some, did you get? Did you get some sleep, pal? Oh, no, right? That's why I was making the funny face. Okay, my bad. Go ahead. Right. Go on. Go so long as I remember to hit record, that's the important part. You're lucky I didn't break when you said gazebo. <laughs> that's, a, that's a that's a that's an inside joke okay <laughs> oh is that your safe word <laughs> gazebo gazebo it sure is uh, there you go there we go, there you Black go. Hat. There you <laughs> all three done it's a show record beautiful beautiful <laughs> 20 minutes in and we're already all done. There you go. Yeah, I'm done. <laughs> so, I'm all um, raged out. I have no more rage in me left. Oh, beautiful. So you'll be in a great mood the rest of the show. <laughs> so uh, so one of the, there was a bit that came out today with uh, Paul Bettany talking about WandaVision, which uh, Latham has no interest in. And um, basically they solidified the story idea is ex- essentially exactly what we suspected it was, which is that Wanda creates this sort of, idyllic life based on 50s sitcoms as a way of dealing with her grief at losing vision and that obviously then the real world starts to creep itself back in 
And apparently the end of the first season of WandaVision dovetails directly into the second Doctor Strange film into the multiverse of madness, setting up the whole idea of the multiverse and everything. So, yeah, they're setting up the evil Scarlet Witch storyline. I'm 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 down. I'm glad. Let me guess. Let me just guess here. So in the multiverse, anybody who's died before can come back and be different. Is that just a close enough guess, or well, there are very there there are multiple permutations there, Liam, yeah. In which uh, case, even if you died in one universe, you might still be alive in another. So right. It's not necessarily like you're back yeah. to life. I saw that movie. It was called Lazy Storytelling. Here's the other problem with that concept, too, Hassan. If we think back, and Doctor at the end of you know an Infinity Gauntlet, Doctor Strange says. He examines all 14 million possibilities and there's only one that works where everybody lives. Mm-hmm. And obviously Why is there a and, limit to the multiverse. Why is it well, I'm just saying he saw, he went through and saw all the possibilities going forward. And there was only one pathway that existed and that existed by him giving Thanos the infinity gem and yeah. dying. So if they're following that, theory then and now you go into a multiverse so now is that multiverse beyond what dr strange is capable of seeing and is that multiverse actually the multiverse like the spider-man multiverse where it's going to be you're going to get all the different spider-man you know and all the different iterations at one time or is it a multiverse where you're talking about different dimensional characters and stuff going into like obviously mephisto is going to be involved in the new one but you have dormammu and you've got the eternal you know, so I mean, it's going to be interesting to see the direction they take it. It's gonna, it's gonna be really interesting. In which of the multiverses do I actually watch the film? You'll watch them. Shut up. You like, you like, you're not gonna watch them. Come on. Well, oh, it'll right. be culturally significant. You'll watch Probably it. True. Well, You'll you know, it. I hadn't, I hadn't seen the Warriors until yesterday. That's true. I'm, that's I gotta I gotta say that's I I gotta say that's surprising. Well, you never seen the Warriors before, Latham? Never saw it until yesterday. How great oh is that? My. Isn't that great? Isn't that amazing. Wow. I still haven't that's... seen Footloose either. Really? Yeah. Now that's really surprising. Actually, that... you know what? I've never seen Footloose personally. Oh or Flashdance. Yeah, I've got to get. I've seen Flashdance. I've got to get one of my one of my disco yeah, fan no disco fan friends on and have them pick those. Um, how about Xanadu? Has anybody seen Xanadu? I, I did, I but I only seen Xanadu. The only way I saw Xanadu was when I was <laughs> running stuff off Netflix and went A to Z and finally got to an X and I couldn't think of another X movie. <laughs> there wasn't I, another I X movie. <laughs> Very good. Um, I think it, I, I think it's interesting that uh, the studio behind A Quiet Place has already greenlit Quiet Place Three, without Quiet Place Two even hitting the studio or hitting I think the. That's you know, kind of jumping the gun a little. They've bit. already signed a director and they've already got a story. They're, the script is already being written. It's based on a, a story concept from Krasinski. Uh, Krasinski is not directing. It's Who's coming from director? the gu- The director is the guy who did Mud. Right. So. All right. And uh, Latham and Hassan, you'll be very happy to know that Michael Bay has announced his next project. <clears throat> okay. <laughs> Pearl Harbor 2 Electric Boogaloo? Nope. It is a, I shouldn't say small film, but smaller compared to what he's been doing the last 10 years. It's called Ambulance, and it's a thriller in the vein of speed or something else he said, in that vein of that Someone 90s. stuck in an ambulance. The 90s, the 90s action thriller 
single single lead, you know, that kind of thing. And uh, Jake Gyllenhaal is going to be the lead in it. So, Well, uh, on that note, I can That's say excitement. The, uh, the worst ambulance movie ever is Bringing Out the Dead. Might be Scorsese's worst film. And also, uh, the best ambulance scene in any movie is from Magnolia, I would say. You've never seen Mother Jugs and Speed. No, I have not. Or the ambulance. Or the ambulance. No, I have not. <laughs> That's or the greatest amazing. ambulance scene ever. Where James <clears throat> Earl Jones that. chases down an old ambulance. That's, that's probably the greatest scene in cinematic history. Mother Jugs and Speed is uh, was what? O.J. Simpson, Harvey Keitel, and Raquel Welch, I think, is their yeah. a- is ambulance drivers. Yeah. Fantastic. Back in the day when you could call a woman Jugs. That's, yeah, that's right. just passed it off as okay and normal. <laughs> yeah. And Raquel Welch would just smile. So uh, my fellow uh, uh, cinementalists will be happy to, to hear. Uh, it was announced this morning that past cinemental guest Lucky McKee uh, is directing, is announced his new directing project. Starting in, he's going to start directing in January, filming in upstate New York. Nice. So. Uh, what's it called? The film was called Old Man. Uh, it'll star Stephen Lang. Uh, nice. set wow. lo- nice. the, log- the log line is set deep in the woods. The plot follows a lost hiker who stumbles upon the cabin of an erratic and reclusive old man. What starts off as a cordial, Lang. <laughs> what starts off as a cordial conversation soon turns dangerous as it becomes clear that one or both of them might be hiding a terrifying secret. That's, that's so Stephen Lang. So <laughs> Stephen uh, Lang could actually be a terrifying secret. He could actually be either one of those two characters. Of course. Yes. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. So the first thing, of course, this morning was uh, besides texting and my congratulations uh, was also uh, a telling him that I had written a story years ago called old man as a comic book concept, which he thought was pretty funny. And secondly was to um, tell him that I'm available for a, uh, PA or security job, you know, should the need arise, or uh, which uh, he which he also found amusing. So <laughs> there you go. Or a slight tumble down a flight of steps, perhaps. Uh, if, you need somebody. Yeah, the moment should arise. I'll open up or my uh, third my, act when Bigfoot arrives. My step. <laughs> I'll be. I'll play Bigfoot. That's. Fine. I know you could play it. Now you could do it. Hold on. Uh, the, the six million dollar man, Bigfoot. That's right. That's right. Yeah. That guy was not to be fucked with. <laughs> Terrifying. My suffering con- from consumption list for this week's uh, this week's watched material. Uh, I watched two two Indonesian horror films. I accidentally watched the second the sequel first because it wasn't clear that it was a sequel. Uh, on Shutter, it was called "May the Devil Take You" because they have it titled "May the Devil Take You Too." T O O. But once it got to the Indonesian titles and it said actual number two, I said oh. Maybe this is a sequel. Um, as it turns out, you can honestly watch them in either order. But the uh, the first one is on is on um, Netflix, and the sequel is on Shutter, and they are both excellent. Okay, uh, super creepy. Um, I also watched a Polish horror film called No One Sleeps in the Forest. I heard about that one, uh, which is pretty good. Um, Pretty standard slasher fare, but um, good bad guys and definitely guys that you could see going on to being in other films. Um, I watched um, I watched CM Punk's horror film, The Girl on the Third Floor. Again, not terrible. 
certainly certainly watchable. But uh, CM Punk plays the main character. It doesn't. Who is that guy? CM Punk. A, he was a WWE wrestler who decided to become an actor. I have a funny, quick, ten-second story. Uh, take as long as you fucking want. Uh, well, you know Tommy, our friend Tommy Greenwald. Sure. Uh, they went to a Cubs playoff game in Pittsburgh, and uh, he got in a skirmish with that guy, CM Punk, in the stands after the game. Get the fuck out of here, really? No, swear to God. Swear to God, yeah. Well, that's, that's fucking That's hysterical. the only reason I recognize the name. I wouldn't know him That's really – well, what, do you know what the skirmish was about? Uh, the game, or the I guess he's a Pittsburgh fan. Oh, probably. okay. Okay. Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, that's funny. Yeah, but- uh, I also watched uh, the New Mutants as it became available finally. Mm-hmm. Hassan, I know you've seen it. Latham, I assume you have not yet, or will ever, or will ever. Uh, Scott, Probably. did you by any chance see New Mutants? I have not. I, I, are you a fan at all of the of the X Men films at all, or not particularly? No. Okay. Uh, I really but- liked the last third. The first two thirds, long way to go to, to find anything to like about a movie. <laughs> the last, the la- the first two thirds were just it, it. needed some help. It needed some structure. It needed some kind of readjusting. I mean, the 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 writing wasn't terrible, but there the the flow of getting to where they needed to get to to set up that last act was just all over the place. And, the, and my, my opinion of it is, and it's an excellent, excellent comic book movies from the early '90s. But you know, it has not evolved. The the it just it doesn't it's it doesn't bother with character. It doesn't bother with establishment. It, it establishes only one character, and then every every other important or potentially important character is just a hodgepodge of yeah, uh, yeah. of tropes. And then, you know, they roll out this final battle without us even knowing the stakes or who, you know, who's what and whatever. It's pretty terrible. My biggest problem with it was that they they gave you the characters that they meet together. Everyone knows that they're all like these kids in a mental institution and whatever. And they're obviously young mutants, whatever. They give the story and whatever. Mutant? The problem I had mostly was the fact that they spent so much time making them dislike each other uh, other than two characters that when the time came for them to turn and sort of begin working together as a team, as you would expect, because this is an X-Men film, you just have a hard time buying it because there is you know, the, the instance that they give you for the bonding moment <sighs> falls really flat. It just like doesn't seem like it would be enough to get you over the hump. Like they spend so much time making certain characters unlikable, or especially for other characters, that by the time you get to the point where you're like, all right, they're kind of coming around and everyone's sort of cohesively now becoming a group because that's the only way we can win. Uh, it just sort of happens and you're like, so now so now all of a sudden you're all buddies now what you know where you know there was no there was no there was no organic flow from that i just felt like it was really all of a sudden and i don't know if that's an editing thing or if it's just a bad writing thing i have a feeling it's a bad writing thing but that's just a feeling i got a feeling you're right you might never know because you don't know oh no we we will not get a we will not get a director's cut of that believe me yeah yeah, I'm, I'm honestly, quite frankly, I'm lucky it was even released. 
I, or I should say I'm quite surprised that at the end of the day, that Disney decided even to put it out at this point. I mean, at this point, it's two and a half years after the fact, uh, after its initial release date, and they could have just as easily just locked this away in a bunker somewhere and no one ever would have fucking seen it. But it's in, it's indicative of their problem in general because I am uh, I was uh, I was a big fan of the New Mutants even more so than the X Men. I started reading the New Mutants before okay. I started reading X Men, and just like their X Men movies, it's just they they just they gave you maybe maybe the broadest and that's being generous but the broadest stroke of of the nature of each and every one of those characters and then, right. and then they just and then the 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 easiest potential stereotype for each okay this is the this is the sheepish one and you know this guy's you know this guy's after the girls and this girl's you know magic is mysterious and 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 um and you know hates authority and all that stuff and there's i mean first of all elena alone would have would have a movie of her own you know um so you know, it just just to kind of throw them all in this loop. It was it was really bad. It was really, yeah. especially unfortunately because of the MCU. You could see the potential of when oh people yeah, take the source material seriously. It's it just does. I agree. Not compare. So then, uh, as far as series style television, uh, I watched three series, three seasons of a of a show about climbing Mount Everest called Everest Beyond the Limit. It's easy to put that on the background. It, all this in the seven days since our last show. Yeah. Wow. All and right. then in a, a thirteen <laughs> meal. There was a thirteen. <laughs> there was a thirteen part series called The Silk Road, which is basically a guy travels the original Silk Road from Italy all the way to China with a different stop in each episode to like deal with the culture and all those countries through Turkey and Kazakhstan and, and China and Tibet and all those to travel the original Silk Road and tell the history of the Silk Road and kind of how it, how it came about. Um, that was pretty interesting. They, did, uh, they put out a sequel series to that too, um, where in the second season people were following him around and it was called Silk Stockings. And then I watched the first season of Leah Remini's Scientology series on Netflix, uh, which is uh, equal parts amazing and heartbreaking. So I, I really like her in the role that she's taken on in that whole is it, thing. Is it a show or is it a documentary? It's a, well, there was originally a documentary called Going Clear. And then so mm-hmm. after she got, after she got out of Scientology, she started doing all this stuff and they started attacking her. At that point, she then decided to use her celebrity to go on the offensive. And she started, she created this, what was going to be a special, it was going to be a documentary, a movie, but then she realized the potential at making a series out of it. And now it's into, into it. It's now it's doing, they've done three seasons of it and they like, they go in the whole first season they go back and interview like top executives from who would have escaped from Scientology to talk to them about just about how the structure works and how the whole thing works and kind of like the only way they were able to get out. Um, <clears throat> it's so funny, like, cause the whole time, all I can think, all I could think of was Willow Creek. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's just, and I'm like, man, I wonder if that's like a branch of them. So I, I'd want to watch that series, but I think it's it's just too much of a slam dunk for me to enjoy it that it would just like feed feed things I'm trying to 
focus less on it. Right. You know, after next year, when you're, when you're off Facebook and all that's behind you, maybe you can just sit down and watch it and just enjoy it for consume it for what it is. Exactly. Um, The other thing, what's the streaming service it's on? It's on Netflix. Um, Going, going clear is on. That was HBO. That's HBO Max. It's got HBO Mm -hmm. Max has going clear. Also speaking of HBO Max and no one is talking about this, which I'm kind of surprised about the, the two hour rock and roll hall of fame ceremony show that HBO max put together for this year's basically for this year's induction. Cause they couldn't have an event was kind of amazing. Um, if you get the chance, absolutely watch it. They did a Anybody really perform. No, absolutely not. Uh, and that's what I liked about it. I liked about it. Cause what they did was they did like essentially a 20 minute, mini documentary about each inductee and also the two guys that were inducted who were not part of, you know, bands or anything. They were executives, um, which was Irving Irving Azoff and uh, John Landau. Uh, And then they also had a little, little um, like maybe five or 10 minute uh, tribute to Eddie Van Halen before their standard in memoriam piece that uh, slashed it which was, uh, which was really nice. Um, just the whole thing, uh, as far as now I've seen a few of the induction ceremonies and I always think that the, the big performance at the end where they get 50 people on stage to perform live and do whatever and all that, I just don't care. It just doesn't do anything for me. I would rather see something like this, especially from the standpoint, like, like they were even interesting to watch about like the musical acts that like, I don't listen to like, I don't listen to Whitney Houston. I never did. I was never a Whitney Houston fan, but the Whitney Houston segment was really interesting. Same as the notorious B I G segment. Uh, and then they had like his son and daughter accept the award. Um, the nine inch nails one of course was great. The Depeche mode one was hysterical at the end. Cause at the end it was, uh, uh Andrew Fletcher, Martin Gore and, and Dave Gahan all on like a split three window zoom thing. And just, Gahan just steering the ship being an absolute lunatic like he is you know just just it was really funny um but a lot of great I mean you know they did this similarly with you know how they normally would do the show where they would have somebody like uh you know like another performer would be like the presenter for that band like 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 Trent Reznor last year introduced The Cure and he did a whole thing about how The Cure was so important to him and all this kind of stuff that's awesome and, and so I was, I was really interested to see who was going to do the intro for Nine Inch Nails. And, uh, and it's Iggy Pop. And uh, he's dressed up. He's in a leather jacket with no shirt. But, um, you know, he's, he's you know, got a very dressy leather jacket. Uh, and then Charlize Theron did Depeche Mode. Oh, it's awesome. Because she was like, she was like going on how like Depeche Mode is literally the soundtrack to her life. Like that's been her like music. Her whole life has been them. And it's like, so she's like, when I got the opportunity to be able to choose songs for the Atomic Blonde soundtrack, she's like, I made sure that there were at least two or three that Depeche Mode songs in it just because. So, you know, it it was really interesting. That that's the side of things that I find much more interesting on that kind of event. Than just having, you know, just watching a band come up and play live, you know, who maybe, who maybe they haven't been together live for a long time or played somewhere. And that's, you know, that's kind of interesting, but I've the, the, that, that plays the pandemic though. I think people, 
I mean, I agree with you. I'd rather rather see what you're describing as well, but most people are going to want live performance and some. Right. I get it. And I understand that. I just, it's I, interesting that they did. That. I just think that the, if you get the chance, uh, you're a music person, definitely check it out. Cause I think, I think that you will, you'll be pleasantly surprised, uh, with the whole presentation and the package that they put together. It was just, it was really cool. Um, there was also a thing, I think you probably can find it online. Um, because the actual induction only had Trent on. And the thing is, is the hall limits you as to how many people you can bring in with you for your band. So, you know, Nine Inch Nails has had about 25 members over the years. And so the seven guys or the six guys that Trent brought with him uh, for nine inch nails. It was an interesting, it was interesting to look at the cross section of who he brought with him. It was obviously who the whole, the whole group he's working with now. But then there were two guys from the old days, which was the drummer, Chris Vrenna and guitarist, Danny Lohner. And it was interesting because, you know, he actually addressed. So the day before this, they actually did a live stream uh, this guy from Australia did like a live stream interview with Trent and the six other guys that you can find online. It's about hour and a half, two hours long. And he actually addresses it there, uh, you know, talking about how, you know, cause he's been getting hit once they made the announcement of which the six guys who were going to go in with him, you know, he immediately got hit with, well, how come, you know, how come Charlie Clouser's not there? How come Rich Patrick's not there? You know, how come this guy? How come that guy? Why why him, not this guy? And he's just like, listen, at the end of the day, you know, there are limits to what, you know, we're allowed to, you know, who we're allowed to bring with us. You know, we're, you know, we're only allowed a certain number of people. And he goes, I had to make the decision, you know, uh, as far as the guys who were here, who were the, you know, the sort of the building blocks you know, and one of the guys even during the live stream was like, you know, you know, I'm, he was, I'm, listen, I'm, he goes, I'm, I believe me, I'm honored that I'm here. I'm just surprised that you picked me. And, and Trent just is like, he's like, no, Danny, he's like, you're, you're part of the DNA of this band. He's like, there's no way you wouldn't be here. So I just, it's, it's interesting to see that side of things. I mean, I always, I'm always fascinated by, by listening to Trent Reznor speak anyway. Um, cause you know, one of the things he talks about at the, at the very start off is how he was always very, very ne- negatively charged towards award ceremonies and accolades in general. That's just was kind of, you know, he was very kind of Marlon Brando esque about that kind of thing. It was just never really a thing that he saw was important. It, his, he's changed in the way that he now sees that the weight you give to an award is really more about the group that the award is coming from and not, and less about the actual award itself. So he just felt, you know, he was, he was, he was very happy that he was, you know, that he was very humble and very, very appreciative of being, um, you know, being, you know, brought into the rock and roll hall of fame. He was, you know, you know, he thought it was a, a really, he thought it was a really good thing. And uh, he was, you know, he seemed very pleased to be a part of it. Huh. So, anyway. I think it, it might be a little early for him to be put in there, but, I mean, eventually he would be in there, I think. So. Okay. So, 
Jumping off into Scott's feature film choice, My Cousin Vinny. A funny thing happened to William and Stanley on their way to college. At what point did you shoot the clerk? They got framed for murder. Whoa! Wait a minute! Now, two kids from New York are in deep trouble in the Deep South, and only one man can save them. You stick out like a sore thumb around here. Oh, yeah, you blend. Don't you wonder why Trotter gave you his files? I told you why already. He has to. By law, you're entitled. It's called disclosure, you dickhead. May I have permission to treat Ms. Beetle as a hostile witness? Do you think I'm hostile now? Wait till you see me tonight. Joe Pesci is my cousin Vinny. You two know each other? Yeah, she's my fiance. Well, that would certainly explain the hostility. From 1992, directed by Jonathan Lynn with a running time of 120 minutes. After a terrible case of mistaken identity, a young man accused of murder calls on his cousin, the only attorney he knows, and in the ultimate example of fish-out-of-water comedies, this big city lawyer learns a little about not only country justice, but justice as well. Scott, why my cousin Vinny? Uh, you know, it, it's funny when you asked, uh, you asked me to, to pick a, a favorite. There's just so many. I mean, you, and I, sure. I was thinking about... You know, did I want to sit here and wax philosophical on The Godfather or some crazy like that? And of course, you already did Jaws, so my favorite of all time is <laughs> is, is out the window. But um, <laughs> I wanted to, I wanted to, you know, maybe explore a little bit of film that I think has so much depth aside from what what it seems to be, which is a comedy. So you got this movie that's a comedy, and I like it first of all because it, it's funny. I find it. I find it extremely funny, but beyond that, I just think that there's so much uh, skill behind the behind it in all these other facets, from the acting to the the story structure and the storytelling techniques. It brings so much more to the table when you actually sit and watch it. Beyond watching Joe Pesci be hilarious, um, <laughs> <laughs> so and I watched it again, you know, just in preparation for this, and there's just. You had called it like a fish out of water story um, or in the write up, it said fish out of water, but it's kind of like, um, it's almost like a shark into water story. <laughs> because This dude goes into this pool that he's not sure about initially, but then once he realizes and gets his footing, he's much better at it than anybody else. So it's kind of a, a shark into water, which is kind of cool. There's this wonderful thing that it does with uh with exposition and it, you know if you've ever you're all writers and creators one of the things that I, I find most difficult is how do you skillfully handle exposition because if you if you do it wrong it's just oh it's just a, a groan and I think this film does it masterfully there's just so much stuff going on there that you think is just uh, a scene to be funny and then you find out later on that it's integral to what's going on here like how long does it take to cook grits, which becomes a major thing at the end of the film? Well, he finds right. that out because he's sitting in a he's sitting in a diner and has no idea what the hell a grit is, and he's right. been curious the whole film. So he's like, "Uh, what is a grit?" And you know, he's got the two breakfast. You have either the breakfast or the lunch or whatever, and there's only two. And he's like, "I guess we'll have the breakfast." So the scene. You think? Is <laughs> That's my. <favorite>. You think? Scene <laughs> <laughs> is a, is is painted comedy and you don't realize that they just given you something that's 
really essential to this whole film working out at the end. Um, and they do that. They do that with a lot of stuff. Like, um, like them just falling asleep in the car and getting stuck in the mud. Stuck in the mud. Which then you, comes back at the end of the line, as anyone knows who's ever been stuck in the mud. Posits, he's talking about pause attraction. He's talking about, you know, independent suspension. All that stuff was really important. But the scene is about Joe Pesci kicking his feet up over his head and landing in the mud, which is one of my favorite visual moments <laughs> of the whole film. And then they double down because you think that Later, you think about, well, that scene wasn't about him falling in the mud. It was about why he got to wear the stupid suit. Right. So here's another comedy moment. So they double down with, oh, no, it, this was the funny they were looking for. But what you realize, it, you realize at the end is, no, that scene was about pause attraction and independent real suspension. Um, there's just a ton of stuff in that movie like that that shows that you're in the hands of, of a really skilled uh storyteller they do a lot of stuff with character development like uh how do you know that Vinny is even a decent lawyer well he he argues with his his girlfriend or his fiance about a dripping faucet for 10 minutes you know and you see both of them you know flex their explanation you know their their muscles on how to argue um they what else did they do um oh the, the guy in the bar the bar fight where he oh, goes, he goes yeah. in to negotiate with the guy about the bar thing, <laughs> which is hilarious. And again, you think that all of that was about him doing that flying punch to the guy's face. Another <laughs> hilarious visual moment where he dives and punches the guy in the face. But what it really is doing is building this character about a guy that knows how to negotiate and knows how to argue. Um, so you have this court procedural tucked away in this comedy. Um, and then you got the acting. I mean, Joe Pesci to me is, is just brilliant. And Marissa Tomei, I, she won an, an Academy Award. Best supporting actress. Yeah. yeah. So you have, you don't see that happening from Caddyshack. And Caddyshack's one of my favorite movies of all time. Right. But Caddyshack doesn't have the depth uh, that something like this has. It's, it's, uh, and it's also another great thing that a comedy needs to be is, is infinitely quotable, which my cousin Vinny is. Yeah. Uh, you can you can pull a ton of quotes out of that movie, uh, which you want out of your comedies. You can say utes to almost anyone. Yes. <laughs> and they know what you're talking about. Exactly. Um, and Mr. It Gambini. <laughs> Mr. Gambini. Are you making fun of me? <laughs> Mr. Gambini. <laughs> oh, uh, it does, it does, and, he, and then they even do the ticking time bomb at the end because you're figuring out like, well, this can drag on forever. But then he does that Jerry Callow Jerry Gallo, Gary Callow. And if you notice, <laughs> even the mix-up of that name is covered up by him messing up a chessboard. So he goes, my name is Jerry Gallo, when he introduces his name, and he dumps over the chessboard. So that's supposed to him being a klutz. But what it's really doing, that audio is... Distracting, yeah. Is distracting and covering up the name that he told this guy. So at the end, you're not even sure. Did he mishear him? Did he get it right? Is he telling the truth? all expertly covered up by a simple, a simple gag in audio. Uh, just great stuff. Just great stuff tucked away in a movie that otherwise is just freaking funny. It's, uh, it's funny you bring up the chessboard as, as how you see to be a, a part of the whole, not plot, but part of that whole, like you said, a cover-up of, did he say Callow or Gallo? The knocking over the chessboard 
was actually an, a complete accident. He never meant to do that. And But the thing is, the director liked it so much, he kept it. But he never meant, when he did the arm swing thing, he was never supposed to swing into the chessboard. Interesting. And that was a complete, a complete accident. So it's really interesting that you sort of built it into being a part of the cover-up of the Callow Gallo, how he, you know, did he act, which one did he actually say? Well, it I think it, it works brilliantly. I mean, it does. I, no, no, no. The explanation does actually work great. Because it, and it also, I mean, this judge is a smart guy and a sharp guy. Oh, yeah. So how, so how do you explain him mishearing it? And you can see his eyes go <laughs> on the chessboard and he's just staring at the chessboard as he's explaining it. So I, <laughs> I had to assume that uh, that that stroke of genius, which now I know is not, was. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah, I had not seen this movie in a pretty long time. I don't I'm trying to think if I I'm I don't know if I would have seen this movie. See, 90, 92 was after I moved to central Illinois. So I don't know if I would have seen this in the theater with you, Lay, or not. I don't think so. I never saw it until yesterday. Oh, okay. So then obviously not. Um, so I'm not sure if I saw it in a theater, if it might've been a couple of years, it took me a couple of years to see it, but um, man, uh, Marissa Tomei, every time she's on the screen is just absolute gold. Just, just, she earns every single ounce of that Oscar and, and right. all, every, in the delivery and the setups of all the stuff. When she when she drops the dickhead line on him, and he's just like dickhead and you're just like it's just it's fabulous it's so great her swearing is just spot on you know you know and, and oh besides, that would uh, certainly explain the hostility yes <laughs> exactly he's, uh, do like you a, two he's, know like, each other? he's a deep voice foghorn leghorn yeah <laughs> fucking ed gwynn just yeah. uh, honestly he should have won uh a best supporting oscar for oh, his role in it just yeah, he's, he's, he's utterly overlooked in that film and just, just he he sells 90 yes. percent of the jokes in that film absolutely um, without absolutely. taking anything away from anyone else you know yeah. it's not he it's uh, not that and I, and the other thing that just absolutely buried me, which of course I had completely forgotten about, was the uh, the public defender after he goes through the whole thing and he gets up to make his opening statement and he's just the worst stutterer ever. And I'm do and I'm watching this and I'm fucking dying because Austin, of course, Austin Pendleton is great anyway yeah. as in those yes, roles yeah. that he did for a number of years. But holy shit, man. <laughs> You know, it's interesting. The director actually has has a law degree. And so it was very important to him for the film itself to be accurate as far as the procedure part of it goes. Uh, And this movie has been shown uh, and used as an example of like films that get it right about, you know, trial films that get it right. You know, I mean, even more so than like, you know, even like Sidney Lumet stuff. You know, and uh, and uh, Sidney Pollack, who's done a lot of a lot of courtroom films. This uh, this this was so much fun to watch. I mean, I, I just I, I kept expecting going into this that there were there's going to be parts, especially a two hour long comedy. That's a tough that's a tough sell. You know, comedies like horror films generally run about 90 minutes for a reason. You know, mm-hmm. you're in, you're out. And if you can make people laugh a third of the time, I think you I think most comedy people will tell you that you've been successful. Um, this being a two hour movie, there's plenty of parts in it. And like Scott said, there's almost no scenes that are in this 
that aren't used to set something up later on are there's like no superfluous material in this you know they you know they go out of their way with the whole the scenes with him moving hotels and moving places to sleep and he doesn't get a good a good night's sleep until he actually goes to prison for the night and that's you know that's where he gets his first good night's rest it's just uh, it it was a lot of fun the guy who wrote this movie also wrote ruthless people and dirty rotten scoundrels wow and uh before he wrote cousin vinny uh now he also wrote blind date and love potion number nine so you know there's the that's the that's the yang to his yin but um he clearly has some writing ability but um the uh yeah this was this was great this was a lot of fun and then you know the great thing where he finally gets caught up at the end you know the thing he's been like he like scott said he's on the clock at the end and then he still gets caught up but yet the thing he interrupted her doing was, you know, saving his ass at the end of the day. And uh, I just, it was a lot of fun to watch this movie again after, after a really long time. And uh, I, I literally, I was laughing out loud at the, at the, at a lot, a lot of the Marissa Tomei parts. Um, so, I mean, it obviously still works. You know, there's, there's clearly a reason why she won the Oscar for that role. Joe Pesci is just, I mean, Joe Pesci, honestly, there aren't a whole lot of roles Joe Pesci plays where he's not playing this guy anyway. The sort of context of how he's taken is really what makes it a comedy or a drama, depending on kind of the, the where he's at. But he doesn't, he, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't, he stays in his lane for the most part. He doesn't, I don't feel like Joe Pesci stretches a lot in his acting. He doesn't, you know, he's not going to have a, a sweet November role out there where he's the, you know, the, the sweeping leading man who's, uh, you know, dating the dying woman or whatever. I just, uh, it's just, he's almost like a perfect, a perfect, you know, when I hear that uh, Jim Belushi apparently voiced publicly that he regrets turning down this role and rightly so. I just, I find it amazing that, that there could have been anyone but Joe Pesci in this part because it just seems like it's so him, you know, let's just say he was, he was born to be Vincent Gambini. You know, it was also uh, Danny DeVito and John Lovitz were also considered for the lead role in this, which again would have made a much lesser film. I think I, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't buy Marissa Tomei with any, either of those two guys, but I buy him with Joe. I buy her with Joe Pesci. I just, I, I, it, I have, I feel like that's, you know, a natural thing. The other thing I found out that was kind of interesting, this film was apparently originally developed as a vehicle for Andrew Dice Clay. Wow. And that after the failure of the adventures of Ford Fairlane, the studio just completely severed ties with him. And uh, then they continued to develop it on and where Joe, they brought Joe Pesci in to, uh, to play that role. But uh, just, I mean, just imagining uh, Andrew Dice Clay in that role. You can sort of see it, but I think as big a guy as he is, you're going to lose a whole big chunk of that movie not being this little guy, you know, because part of that whole thing, the running gag of the, of the, of the fight, the, the potentiality of the, of the, of the ass kicking for the $200 that keeps getting built up, keeps getting built up. And then, you know, ends in a, ends in a, is that an essentially a single punch? You know, just because he's just because he's in a hurry, you know, because I don't have time for you right now. Yeah, that scene, that scene would not have worked. But because, uh, yeah, because he would have been looking the guy in the eye. It's just it would have been a completely different thing. Uh, Latham, since you have not seen the film before, why don't, uh, why don't we go to you first? 
<clears throat> I think it's a good movie. I like I said, I I didn't see it when it first came out. It took me a long time to see it. it took took uh, Scott Scott choosing it for me to see it. I probably wouldn't have watched it otherwise. Everything you've said, I already I agree with. The I think Fred Gwynn is the most underrated thing about this film. He's unbe- unbelievable and commanding whenever he's on screen. Steals every scene unless Marissa Tomei's in it. She steals every scene. I think Pesci is fine. I don't. I've never thought Pesci has had a lot of range, but he's easily put into whatever role he's given and he nails it because they know what they want him to be for it. Um, and you know, I, he doesn't have an extensive acting filmography. Am I right or wrong guys? I think, yeah. I seem like uh, he, not yeah. all the way back to raging bull. I mean, he's had a long one, one, but how many movies has he actually been in? I could have looked it up, but, but well, it, honestly, it's how many movies has he done that, that weren't, Robert De Niro, or that weren't, uh, you know, vehicles Scorsese. by Scorsese. Scorsese, yeah, yeah. He's, you know, he's he's good in it, good or great in everything, and that's yeah. I mean, he's got forty acting credits. Okay, that's a lot. That's more than I thought. Um, it's interesting that you said that Jonathan Lynn was. You said he was a lawyer himself for part of the. He, he has a law degree. Yeah. Right. So it, it it Scott was saying there's a lot of depth to this movie, and I kept thinking while I was watching it that he had a little bit of contempt for the court system and the system of law in the United States. That's what it felt like to me at times with what he was trying to say. Maybe I was looking too much into it, but I like that. I liked these little aside things that seemed a little out of place, but were unique to the film. So that made it interesting uh, for me. If there's any knock on it, I think the, I I know the movie's two hours long. So when you get to an hour 40, you got to move and, and finish it. But I think the ending of it comes really, really quick. Uh, the last 15 to 20 minutes and boom, it's over. And that, that felt a little rushed to me, but otherwise, you know, the comedy was great. Marissa Tomei is awesome. All the acting in it's great. Uh, they really set it up as far as you never don't believe you're not in this little Southern town in Alabama, uh, with all the exterior shots and you know, that, that's done really well and mixed in well with with uh, with obviously when they shot on set. So that was cool. I know one thing I, I noticed the two the two parts at the beginning where you have the person talking about one thing, but the other person thinks it's about another thing uh, when they're in the jail cell and he thinks the guy, you know, Joe Pesci has come to yes. like have sex with them. And then there's the when the cop is questioning him. And they're they they're talking about two different things, right? Sometimes when you do that, or you use that technique in your writing or whatever, it seems to be uh, like you're efforting a bit. And both of these scenes felt like a little efforted. Like I get the I get the joke, and now we're going too long with it. And that kind of bothered me a little bit. Like it was funny at first, but then the double entendre or whatever it was just went a little bit too far. And that okay. that felt. You know, I understand why he did it, but it felt like he was going through a formula like, oh, we're going to put this in one of the first scenes in the movie. Then we're going to put it in one of the third or fourth scenes in the movie. And then they didn't really do it after that. I don't know that that felt a little generic, but I, I like I liked the movie. I, I, I didn't it, it was exactly what I thought it would be. And I did laugh out loud at times, which is very hard to get me to do in this day and age. So um, I don't know why I like it. She didn't watch. She actually didn't watch that one. Oh, okay. Yeah, I enjoyed it, and I'm I'm glad I got to see it. I'm again. It's 
like the other movie we're going to talk about later and other movies from the 80s. I'm just surprised I never saw it. It was a big hit and it just slipped by. But now I've watched it and I can say it's worth watching. Hassan? I think if, if you um, if you put uh, Jim Belushi or um, who was the other person? Andrew Dice Clay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think I think the movie could work with either one of those guys, but I think the I think it wouldn't have had the lasting power that it that that this film has because you would have dated it with those two guys. Well, I don't think those two guys are are comedic entities in and of themselves. They they have a they had a, you know at times have a knack for being comedic, but Joe Pesci is can make a spectacle of himself. So Joe Pesci can be a character even without the dialogue, you know? True, And true. so he's powerful enough to stand up to Marissa Tomei's uh, Academy Award-winning performance. Right. And, and, uh, and the judge. Um, I mean, he, 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 he doesn't get overpowered by them. So whereas maybe he doesn't have a lot of range, but neither does, like, in, in, in many instances, neither does Nicholson, you know? Oh, but, yeah. he, but he's you know he's super powerful in whatever you put him in so he's just he's just one of those caliber actors where you just don't mind watching him in general right. and then everybody else has to act up in order to to <laughs> be able to uh share scenery with with him and not be overpowered by it i will agree with with latham about the ending i think story-wise i think that ending is tacked on about the, the the reality of the fact that it was two other guys, because as clever as as what Scott says, as clever as every other aspect of the of the story is for foreshadowing and and inter, intertwining um, com- comedic gags to actually be um, you know, like uh, genuine important set pieces in in the in the outcomes of the story, for them to just for nobody to have considered that maybe we just got the wrong guys and that the actual crime happened with very convenient similarities in vehicle and, and circum it, it, there could have been a, in my opinion, there could have been a clever way to do that also um, to, to foreshadow that as well. And then have us just, and have uh, through, through act of misdirection, have us just not remember that that was foreshadowed. And then when they reveal it, you're like, oh, yeah, this this actually did, you know, these these, you know, we did actually even see this thing and we just didn't uh, correlate the the pieces together. So just to say, oh, yeah, it's like a, it's very Scooby-Doo at the end where you just pull the, the mask off and it's like the handyman, you know, and it's like, oh, all right. Well. Never even find out who did it, which was unique to the movie, too. Yeah, but I mean, it, do, it doesn't hurt the film, but it is a kind of. Oh, look over here, you know? Oh, but it's, it's one of the only cheap gags in the film is that, look, uh, uh, ultimately these guys didn't do it. We don't know who did it, you know, but they had a different car. Well, they do. You know, they catch them at the end. Yeah. But I mean, it's, it's not a, it's not an integral part of the story. That's true. You know, well, what's interesting about that though, Hassan, is that th- number one, we know they didn't do it because we see them. Yeah. Right. We, we see them the whole time. So we know that they hadn't committed the crime, but there is that point where Pesci says, you know, you know, you, you can't be, you know, they can't, you know, we're not going to lose because you didn't do it. And he does the thing with the playing card 
and says, yeah, that it's, was awesome. it's this thin because you're innocent. So all I have to do is figure out how to explain that to them because we know that we're right. And I also wonder sometimes, were they being railroaded also because they had non-Southern plates on their car? You know, I don't know if they ever pushed that, but you do get the sense because they do call them Yankees and stuff yeah. like that. Were these people quick to jump because, you know, they're not good old boys? They had a lot of witnesses, though. So it seems like someone put this plot together to burn these kids. I mean, the three different witnesses that saw them, you know, would they just come out of the blue or whatever? I mean, that's not the point of the movie either, but it's through that dirty screen and all those leaves. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It it seemed like, sorry to interrupt. It's not, it just seems like he was trying to make these points about how court proceedings are silly at times. That's, that's how I felt. And hearing from Steve that he was, he had a law degree. It seems like he had a mini agenda with this movie, but go on Hassan. Sorry. The only, the only point I'm making is that if we're going to, if we're going to cite the movie um, as for its cleverness, there is one aspect of the film that that feels clunky. That's, that's the only thing I'm saying. It doesn't really hurt the film, but if everything else is so, it's, it's such a smooth transition from one, uh, from one scene to the next um, in, in such a way that you don't even realize that you are being, uh, you are being given information and you are being guided from one, uh, from one conclusion to the next conclusion. Then at the end, it just say, oh yeah, by the way, someone else did it. And, you know, here it is. Is just a, for me, it was kind of because while I was watching it, I remember watching it for the first time, it gave off the feeling right or wrong, because there's, you know, could have just been me. It gave off the feeling like, not only was he going to get these guys acquitted, but he was going to solve the mystery of, you know, of, of what genuinely happened. And basically when they stop at the revelation that it couldn't have been them because of the positive attraction, you know, in the car, and then it, his involvement in it ends. And then they turn out that they, they caught the other guys, you know, it just kind of, it seemed like something was left off. It seemed like there was a there was another opportunity the movie could have could have taken, and they just just said let's just cut our losses. Let's stop here. It, we're yeah. you know we're already in a in in a, in a level of genius you know right here. Let's not push too far. It felt like a step below clever from the rest of the movie. Like they that's and that, and it's not. It doesn't hurt the film. It's no. not a it's not a deal breaker. But it's just I, the only reason I mention it is because Latham mentioned it. You know, and I and I kind of. I do remember having the same kind of feeling about it. Like, oh, it's kind of like um, without <laughs> I can I can never comment on this fucking book without without well giving away. But it's kind of like the girl with the dragon tattoo when you're like, oh, okay, <laughs> you know, it's like one of those the revelation. Yeah. And, they, and I'm not even talking about the movie. I'm talking about the book because the book was 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 so brilliantly built. And so brilliantly paced and so so brilliantly established. And then when you find out what the mystery was, you're like, ah, oh, oh, all right. You know, you know, just, there's there's now is that because of the story, the, the revelation is lame, or is that because you built up the possibilities in your own imagination from reading? You know? It's it it's you know, were you was it set up so well that no matter what the revelation was, you were going to be disappointed by it? You know, it's just one of those things. You don't know what it is. So think, the only reason. I was just going to say, I think that that, that 
the thing that you guys see as a tacked on bit about, you know, the sheriff, you know, after getting the tip from Pesci about the car, you know, I think that, you know, what you guys see as a tacked on bit, I just sort of see as them acquiescing into giving you a wrap up of the story without having to go into a lot of detail. I think that if they had just not mentioned anything else about the other car and never said anything, you know, people would have gone and been like, well, what about the guys who actually did it? You know, at least with that little bit of, of exposition by the sheriff, you know that the great guys were caught and they're actually in jail somewhere and they can now go back and connect them up properly to the, to the crime, or you assume that's going to take place. Well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying that part shouldn't be there. Oh, I know, but I'm just saying it's not integral enough to the main part of the movie to warrant anything, but exactly what's given. Yeah. I kind of feel like if you went any further, Pesci becomes a detective, not a lawyer. Um, <laughs> and that's not what it's, I didn't feel that that's what it's about, but the, Though I do, I do understand what you're saying, Hassan. If if they could have figured out a way for him not only to acquit them, but to also help catch the other guys without going too far down that rabbit hole, that would have been brilliant. I or or perhaps it. if they had made the two guys be characters we'd already met somewhere along the line in the film, like being two local guys or maybe the guy who fights them in the bar or whatever, you know, something along those lines. But I, I think with them being just, you know, I, I don't think it's a necessity to, to have to do any more than other than tell you that we've got them. It just kind of stops with a thud as far as I'm concerned. And it's not, it's not even that bad. It's only, it only gets mentioned because someone else mentioned it. Like I probably wouldn't even have said anything about it in my, in my reaction to the film itself. But since Latham said it, you know, I just discover, I do agree with that, that aspect of it. Okay. It just kind of, it just kind of stops short. I'm not, I'm not attacking you. I'm not, I'm not asking you to defend yourself. I don't don't feel attacked. I'm just, I'm just saying, um, Now I don't want to do the rest of this. No. Oh, uh, God. <laughs> fuck you guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I think the heart of the whole film is character. Like I was saying before, um, I think I think the reason why, like even as I said before, even even without the range of uh, that some of the other actors have, um, Vinny actually uh, or Joe Pesci actually stands up to the rest of the cast very well by the imminence of his, his own craziness. He's also very, he's, he's helped a lot by, by Ralph Macchio's uh, explanation of why he called Vinny in the first place, which is like a, a, an integral component in, in having us be able to accept Joe. Cause Joe Pesci is very, his, <clears throat> his character is very irreverent and he's, he, he is a fish out of water, but he's like a, He's more of a bull in the china shop kind of situation where he's not he's not gonna he's not laboring to to assimilate to the to the culture around him. He's you know he's what in the ties. You ever heard of that? <laughs> yeah. He's not he's not trying to to kind of coalesce with the rest of them. But he, and he's not he's arrogantly defiant, he's arrogantly who he is, but he's not acting in an arrogant way. No, he's right? not so, to anyone, you know, or the culture or anything. Yeah, but I mean, I think that, the reason too. the reason you accept that as quickly is because of 
why <laughs> Ralph Macchio called him is because of his, you know, his belief that you look this guy, you know, he's my cousin. He, he, when he gets on a terror about something, he's not going to let it go. You know, he's not going to, he's not going to walk. He's, he's the only one who figured out, you know, that, that wasn't willing to, to uh, stand by for this guy's uh, magic trick. You know, he, he, he wasn't willing to, to, to fall for the showmanship. He wanted to, he wanted to know the pieces underneath. He wanted to, you know, he, he just wouldn't leave that guy alone. He was, he kept saying, I know where it is. I know, you know, and so that's probably one of the most important moments in the film because it sets up Vinny. It explains Vinny before Vinny actually gets a chance to be on camera. So by the time he gets there, we're already, uh, well, how would you describe it? We're already on board with his irreverence because his irreverence is, is according to the guy who is in peril, his irreverence is the only thing that he thinks is going to save them. So right, he can talk himself so, out of anything, right? Yeah, so we don't even have to get used to Vinny. We are already told that Vinny is the solution to this problem, <laughs> you know? And all we have to do is just wait to, to, for him to weave his magic to get everybody out of the situation. Without that speech, and he's, I'm going to call my cousin Vinny because I know he's a lawyer. Without, without him making that, without him giving that testimony, and, it, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm off a bit because... I think he gives that speech a little later after we meet, meet Vinny, but we are able to basically understand that as far as the narrative of the film goes, the guy has a, a, a magic to him, you know, same thing we, we discussed before about like the supernatural aspect. I don't think there's anything supernatural to him, but the story is telling us it's going to, it's going to be weird. It's going to be crooked, but, but stay tuned. You're going to watch this, this character, <laughs> perform something that you're not going to expect. And so as, as pertains to like, uh, you know, some of the basic tenets of, of storytelling, uh, Lee Child, who writes the Jack Reacher books, he says, you know, you want to keep people enthralled in something, ask them a question and then don't answer it until the end of the book. Right. right. Basically his, you know, this, this situation is, I know the, I know the solution to this problem. The solution to this problem is my cousin Vinny why is this guy and that's the that's the proposal right of the situation the 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 argument is why why would you pick this idiot to be your lawyer and the and the solution is the story that Ralph Macchio tells him about this magic trick and so now we are now we are told exactly what's going to happen exactly why the character is there and exactly what the character is going to do and we just we're just going to have to watch it unfold because it's going to unfold you know, it's, it's a promise of how it's all going to unfold. Right. Um, and I think, and that's, that's very difficult to do story, storytelling wise. It's very difficult to do in a way that you're not, you don't see that you're being set up for something because when you do, when they do it badly, it ruins a story. It, it kills an entire story. Mm-hmm. When you think that the, when someone is setting up a cliche, you know, it destroys a story. I was talking to uh, friends last night about, the three John Wick movies and the first John Wick movie really works really well because it's the simplest plot imaginable. And a guy has this, the, the, there's a guy there who tells him the story. He's not the boogeyman. He's the guy you send to kill the boogeyman. And this is why we should be afraid of him because blah, blah, blah. And then all Keanu Reeves really has to do is live up to the, the spectacle that the guy has set up for him. Right. And the reason the second movie which I still like. I like all three of them. Second movie doesn't work quite as well 
is because now you're getting into the intricacies of John Wick and now he's a, he's a guy over a barrel and then he's got to do things that he doesn't want to do. So it kind of complicates the, 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 it complicates the story, but it messes with his mythology a little because he's a mythological creature in the first one. Mm-hmm. And the second one, he's just a guy who doesn't want to be, he, he's a guy who's working on the day he should be, that's his day off. You know, it's basically clerks. The second movie is clerks. <laughs> and, uh, and the third movie it gets back into it. It's a, it it oversimplifies the situation yet again. He is a he is a man alone fighting an army of people, but the army of people are the ones you're worried about because he's John Wick. It gets back into his mythology, and it, there are a number of speeches given by a number of supposedly talented murderers that we got to be really careful because, let's face it, we are dealing with John Wick. We are the ones right. who are outnumbered here. When you when you when you are able to establish things like that, it's gold, you know. When you can do it well, and surprisingly enough, uh, my cousin Vinny does it fantastically. It's always something you can you should try to do with character, not a Morgan Freeman voiceover at the beginning of the story <laughs> or something like that. You know, you should have a character do it if you're convinced that this guy who is a mafia super super villain is afraid of Keanu Reeves, then we understand, we, we get the fear. And, 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 we, and our, own, our own understanding of the film, our own digestion of the film helps that narrative. If we think that Ralph Macchio has unwavering faith in his cousin because of this stupid story about a magician, but for some, for some reason, you know, Vinny is this, this kid's hero and he's going to save us. All we got, all the film has to do is just follow through with that, you know, and we're already in, you know, and, and then that instead of making it, it's because I mean, uh, uh, Joe Pesci could have come in and it could have been the fish out of water situation, but if they had done it wrong, you could have been watching it kind of annoyed that he's not, you know, that he's pissing off the judge that he's, you know, they, by, you know, uh, that, that he's not, that he's picking fights with the locals, that he's having fights with his girlfriend you know, without that little speech to set us up to, to, to make him the protagonist, to, to make him sympathetic to us, because we know that the one guy who's in jeopardy is counting on this kid, it, the, the whole film becomes a very different uh, experience. That's so I, I, I remember watching, I'm sorry, Scott, I, give me, I, I just remember watching it again this time around and noticing that profoundly, that, that, that affected me. Uh, very strongly that uh, that testimony from uh, Ralph Macchio's character and Ralph Macchio doesn't really for, for being the karate kid he doesn't really do a lot in the film no you know? but I think that speech is probably one of the most integral pieces of the puzzle that puts this movie together that makes the movie great I'm what were you gonna say Scott I'm sorry I think I think you know you like you said it, it builds up his character I think he actually has Vinny has two adversaries I think in the movie one is the judge because yeah. he just he just can't seem to figure out how to please this guy, right. even though we all know how to please this guy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, wear the right clothes. Don't talk when you're not supposed to. Like we know what he's doing wrong. He does. He just can't get it. But I think right. his other adversary, who's also his greatest ally, is Mona Lisa Vito, his fiance, because she's the one that's always like you're freaking useless. Like she's always, <laughs> she's not impressed, but right. at all because. 
what I think is wonderful about that also is she's just as smart as him and she's just as witty and she's just as good at everything as Vinny is. She knows as much, if not more, about cars. She reads the whole freaking legal book while he's out hunting. <laughs> and yeah. she, knows, she knows more about all the things he's supposed to be good. She's equally as good an arguer as he is. They have that argument over the dripping faucet. She's just as good at him. And she does not hesitate to call him a dickhead <laughs> when she wants yeah, to. Yeah, that's right. So, um, but, for sure. but you know what sells her being as smart or smarter than him is him acknowledging she's as smart or smarter than oh, him. Oh, absolutely. He and never that, called. Yeah. And that never, scene where he says she knows everything about cars, you right. know, she, she's never heard of that. And the guy laughs. So you already know that the, the, that she's kind of an underdog in the situation because she's a woman. Mm-hmm. Right. But he doesn't hesitate. He has, he doesn't condescend to her at all in that, you know, he, he actually defers to her a lot yep. of the time. So that, that again, helps us understand we should be taking her seriously as well. You know, I'm not, I'm only breaking the, the, it down because this is what I saw this time around seeing the film. I'm not saying that these things in, in particular are what make the film great. I just, I love the film. And the only thing I could really say about it was like, it's a really great film. And I think uh, Joe Pesci is really funny. And, you know, and so in order to say a little more than just, Hey, I really love this film and I'm glad I got to, to watch it again. I just, I'm just talking about the little elements of, uh, of subtlety that mm-hmm. really help you like kind of get through the, the film. Like it really, it really gives you information without you knowing you're being given information. And it's, I mean, that is one of the hardest things to do in storytelling. I, I tremendously respect it. And then uh, the, the, the human element also, if, there, if the characters weren't real, the whole situation would have been just kind of an absurd mixture of bad stereotypes, you yeah. know, bad, bad, you know, Italian, stereo, Italian New York stereotypes and bad Southern stereotypes. And, you know, uh, a bunch of, it could have, it could so easily have gone in the wrong direction. But this, yeah. the, the, the script itself doesn't condescend to either of these, you know, these two cultures that clash. So it's, it's, uh, it's a wonderful film. It keeps uh, Marissa Tomei's character human in that last courtroom scene, too, because as soon as she gets mad at him, they could have flipped it back to where she's immediately on his side. But she remains difficult for half of <laughs> yeah. that scene. And that feels real. Like she still won't cooperate won't comply and then right. she finally gets it and that yeah she doesn't even care up. what's at stake <laughs> she's just pissed at him she doesn't right. give a damn that was very stake. human making her very human there but still not relenting to making her like a bad female stereotype because and, and all of that wrapped up in just a comedy what could have easily just been a slapstick goofball quotable <clears throat> comedy all of this technique and character building is wrapped up in it I think I think if uh, Jim Belushi or uh, or Andrew Dice Clay had done it, it would have just been a comedy, because mm-hmm. I think they would have. Andrew Dice Clay kind of has what Joe Pesci has, where he is more of a preeminent uh, shtick than than he is an actor. But it, his 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 form of comedy is so hostile towards everybody else that it wouldn't. It would. The, I don't think the story would have had the same charm. And James Belushi, I think he's a great actor. I've seen him in some really wonderful films. But he would have probably played the comedy straight 
and you did need a little over the topness so that the stereotypes weren't insulting, you know, mm-hmm. because if you had Jim, uh, Jim Belushi trying to do North Jersey, kind of Brooklyn. Yeah. Or mm-hmm. yeah. North Jersey or Brooklyn yeah. kind of, you know, I don't think it would have worked. You know, I just don't think he, Jim Belushi comes off as an everyman, you know? Yes. And Joe Pesci is just, he's so steep. Not in that. Yeah. In that, <laughs> in that uh, Scorsese Italian, you know, tough guy act that it just, it really works uh, to his benefit. Yeah. Uh, it's funny. The, uh, the two Utes conversation <laughs> uh, is actually drawn from a conversation between Joe Pesci and the director, the director is British. And apparently when they were at some point when they were discussing part of the script, uh, that Utes conversation is very close to a, a, a conversation that Jonathan Lynn had with Joe Pesci. He's like, I'm sorry, what did you say? <laughs> <laughs> um, the, the joke was, or it wasn't really a joke, but we were, uh, we're uh, the judge pulls out the, the Alabama, uh, guide to law or whatever and hands it to him. He's like, I want you to read this book and, you know, know everything in this book. So, so the U S constitution has about 4,000 words in it. The uh, Alabama state constitution apparently is the longest state constitution that exists in the U S at something just over 300,000 words. So that probably in Lord of the Rings would Jesus not have happened Christ. would not have happened overnight. <laughs> Here's another uh, a fun uh, uh, casting bit. So Lorraine Bracco was the first choice for Mona Lisa DeVito. He could have pulled it off. Yes, and I think even at the time. So the one thing, and we none of us brought it up, um, just because. Who cares? But I think Lorraine Bracco almost would have made more sense from an age standpoint. I was going to yeah. say that um, when I first saw the movie, when I was a kid, I thought she was way too young she for him. Little, she seems a little young for him, but eh, you know. But it grew on me. It grows right. on you. you yeah, yeah it's, kinda, it's definitely better. It's definitely better, more about the relationship, and you and you know once they sort of. Uh, yeah, because when I watched Found it, this time, the I didn't even think about it. You know, it yeah, didn't. Right. You know, I agree. I agree. Um, so yeah, so uh, my cousin Vinny, a winner. <laughs> Any way you look at it, <laughs> everybody signs off. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, so before we jump into posters, anybody need anything? No good. Okay. I need <clears throat> money, power, and respect. You're not going to find any of that here, pal. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. <laughs> well, you might find a little respect. You um, got to ask, but you do have right. to ask. <laughs> that is right. So, <clears throat> so we've got a short subway ride. And, Latham, oh. and Latham's not playing tonight. <laughs> yeah. I'm very sorry, Scott, that you have to witness this. What, what, what happened here? Here we go. <laughs> we, have a, we, have a, we have a short subway train ride. Oh, I mean, we're going to talk about Jonathan Lynn's movies in the martini? (laughs) No, Lay. We forgot something. Oh, what do we do before that? We go down the tubes. 
And again, the Internet is not something that you just dump something on. It's not a big truck. It's, it's a series of tubes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not him again. <laughs> oh. oh, good. There's only four. <laughs> yeah. No, there's not. <laughs> only for my cousin Vinny. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. Yeah, so yeah, so for my cousin Vinny, apparently no one has ever done an alternative poster for that film. Yeah. Um, well, I shouldn't say it, nobody; at least one person <clears throat> has. But um, so yeah, so their their uh, their their poster uh, marketing program was literally uh, this poster. That's a good one. I mean, for the most part, I mean, you know, the good foreign, log line. The few foreign posters I found are pretty much this. You know, uh, just over you know in a different language. Uh, not a lot of changes. I mean, I, you know, the, the UK quad poster. Ah, the funniest you know, film since Home Alone. Well, that's not difficult. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the funniest male-female comedy duo to hit the big screen so far this year. Achingly like, funny. What kind of achingly yeah. funny? Yeah, it's definitely not achingly it's- funny. Why do they have Joe Pushy? Like they have him literally standing on books. Like what? What was the point? Because he's not as tall as she is. Clearly, but what? Clearly, that was never made a point in the movie. <laughs> no, not at all. Poster. No. Well, it's not furiously Joe brilliant. Short. That's funny. <laughs> it's not furiously brilliant. <laughs> but it is achingly funny. Holy monstrously God. funny. Okay. Yeah. Give me more adjectives, quickly, quickly. <laughs> the second UK quad. Yeah, the second UK quad, again, is just... Uh, Rambo you know, terminating. I mean, come on. It's, yeah. It, it's, it's a little silly. The marketing is a little... little. It should have been... Believe what me, is I'm the sh- car doing yeah, almost I mean, killing Herman? There's no <laughs> yeah, way to incorporate the car. You don't, wait, wait. Your, your version didn't have the scene where the Cadillac crashes through the courtroom wall? Yeah, well... <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Red Gwyneth. Wait, with, with whole action set piece into the. I don't yes. And why is it a red Cadillac? It's supposed to be a mint green Skylark. Well, his car was a Cadillac. Oh, that's that's supposed to be his car. Yes, the car that they drove into town. Anyway, apparently, right into the courtroom. Uh, yes, yeah, that they they, is... they parked it in the courthouse. That's okay, uh, and then this I have I have terrible. one I have one poster by Mark Welzer on this particular. Uh, yeah, which is which is kind of funny because is that a Hitchcock reference. Uh, it it's it is got a bit Saul Bassy, but uh, what's even funnier is the fact that they wrote the tagline of a comedy of trial and error, which is actually a later Jonathan Lynn film, Trial and Error, with uh, Michael Richards and uh, somebody else. Well, that's terrible. Man, okay. But even still. Wow. This is that's the saddest down the tubes we've ever had. Yeah. <laughs> that, that, that's yeah, just, just for that movie. <laughs> yeah. You'll you'll enjoy the next this next section a lot more. I'm thirsty, Steve. You thirsty? Yeah. Then maybe we ought to have a martini. What do you think? What do you think, Hassan? Oh my god. <laughs> Why do I work with these people? <laughs> and not get paid for it. <laughs> I must truly be lonely. So <laughs> I'll pretend I like them for just one more week for episode 59. <laughs> After 69, I'm leaving. 
<laughs> 69 and out. 69. Oh. 69, dude. Now you got me doing stop, stop. <laughs> Episode 961. I'm finally quitting. Yeah. Um so so Jonathan Lynn's directorial collection here is is interesting to say awful. the least. It's mostly awful. Uh, yeah, you know, awful. cousin Vinny is cousin Vinny is far and away the the high point high point. But there are a couple of films on here that are definitely rated way too low. Sell it. The whole nine yards. Ugh. I enjoy. I like whole nine yards. Man, uh, okay. And also greedy. I thought greedy was pretty funny. Uh, nothing else on his list, including the uh, highly, way, way overrated clue here is. Uh, oh, come on. I don't remember what I no. gave that. I, Flames. I mean, Flames. nuns on. I mean, trial and error, nuns on the run. It was at least unique. Nuns on the run. Wow. That was. Uh, that I was. That. I was curious about Wild Target because it had. Uh, Sounds like a Jean Claude Van Damme movie. Yeah, right. Target. Right. And that's a good movie. That is a good movie. Um, Where is Clue? One of his few. I don't think I ever saw Clue. Few what? Good, good movies? movies. Yeah. Oh. What would Van Dam. I mean. What would you say John Claude Van Damme's best film is? Time Cop. Wow. Boxer. Uh, that's a hard one to refute, Hassan. That's probably right. I, although I, think I, 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 I was, I was really literally good. thinking the exact same thing. Kickboxer is good in and of yeah. itself. The problem now, you see, I really like Cyborg. It's silly. I, I, I give it that. Uh, I, it's, I think it's hysterical that everyone's named after a guitar in that film. Um, <laughs> uh, do that in any movie and not be a goddamn cyborg, though. Gibson Rickenbacker, <laughs> Fender Stratocaster, whatever. Yeah, but... it's so goddamn funny. The first time I saw it in the theater, I was like, "Are you fucking kidding me with this?" That is fucking fabulous. I didn't see. Um, but yeah, this is uh, yeah. He doesn't have a great catalog no, of, of films. It's it's pretty much I think obvious and and agreed on by all of us that my cousin Vinny is going to be pretty much the the top of the heap here. The and apex he, and the heap is is the operable word. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but uh, it's not. I, I think we'll. I think we'll hold off on digging into Walter Hill until so we actually get a Walter Hill film as our main film because that's a that's a much more deep and um, heady conversation. Yeah, yeah, that's a much more substantive mm-hmm. conversation. And Lynn is British, right? Yes, he is. So that's also interesting that he became a lawyer in America. And then, well, I don't know that he's a lawyer in America, or I mean, he, whatever he, whatever you said, he you know, he would be a barrister, but well, he would, but I mean, the legal systems are completely different, especially in procedure, which is what he goes into hard with this movie. So that's fair. Uh, that is fair. But it's uh, uh, could also be that uh, you know he was British, but he had been in America. You know, I don't know when he came to America. Yeah, maybe. <clears throat> Uh, didn't he do uh, Distinguished Gentleman? Is that he did? That's the Eddie Murphy movie, right? I didn't see that. That's that's his lowest rated film. Yes. Wow, it's that bad. Okay, I'm not going to see that. I don't think actually, that I I, I. I actually enjoy that film, but it's I don't not think a great I've film. I don't think I've seen it. Did you just? Say I, I think... enjoy that film, but it's not a great film. It's one of Eddie Murphy's best. One of those, you know, from that era. Yeah. You know, from the from the the Eddie Murphy decline era. 
you know, where he's not making like great Boomerang movies anymore. And, uh, oh, much, yeah, Boomerang see, I like is Boomerang. No, Boom, no, Boomerang's not one of them. Boom, Boomerang is, is a, was a is box the break, office. Is that the break point? Yeah, I mean, right around there. 90, I think. What was the... Yeah, right after, the... from basically the Beverly Hills Cop 3 era, where Ooh. things just aren't working anymore. Uh, you know? that, was, that was a deep dive down, so... Bowfinger. Yeah. Bow, Bowfinger. Oh, that's supposed to be kind of funny, isn't it? I never saw that movie. Now, Norbit, I think, is hilarious, but that's another outlier, and it's not supposed to be funny. It just Norbit is funny. isn't supposed to be funny? It's you're supposed. I mean, if you look at that, if you look at that Nor- film, is it Norbit approaching Tyler Perry territory? Oh boy, no, it's not that schlock. Okay, it's, okay. it's really not. Um, not another. Flavor. If you look at Norbit, Whoa. if you look at the trailer, you're, you'd you'd be like, this this is a travesty. I would not watch. Norbit, this. Like I would not laugh once. Yeah, but if you watch the film, it's actually funny. Okay, I will. Is that is, is that but it, fat, but it, is that but, fat suit Eddie Murphy? Yeah. That was he is in a fat suit in the film. That's okay. not Nutty Professor, but he he is in a fat suit because he plays a uh, Respucia. There's some bad movies on his list. Yes, they are. Yeah, Iron makes, well. I can't I can't defend Eddie Murphy's career. As a, I'd love to, but it's no, it's not. a losing battle. <laughs> you you will not. <laughs> no, sir. I will not. Oh, they're making Beverly Hills Cop Four. Oh, yeah, supposedly. Stop. Really? Yeah, they really are. I guess they wanted Murphy's to make a TV plan. show out of it, but that something happened. These directors are like Arabic or something. Adil El Arbi and Bilal Falal. Who the fuck are these guys? I think it's right. interesting. Arabic, Arabic directors, probably. <clears throat> I think it's interesting Where they that. I, th- I don't know. I'm looking. I think it's interesting that three of the top six highly rated Eddie Murphy films are animated films with his voice. Yeah. Well, he's a very good voice actor. Uh, Yeah. uh, This guy directed Bad Boys for Life, and they plugged him for Beverly Hills Cop 4. So I didn't see that, but I heard it was decent. So we'll give it a chance. It was one of the highest grossing movies of 2020. I mean, it, it was easy. You mean, but it was like the last. It was the last. It was the last theatrical de- release in 2020. One of the last big ones. Yeah, yeah. This guy, these guys, and it was a, it was a big, it was a bigger hit than they expected it to be. Everybody kind of wrote it off. Yeah, but it ended up being larger than people expected. Top four, especially if I'm still stuck inside. Look at that, Golden Child, 26. percent Oh, that's unfair. That movie's funny. Nope. Oh, it's not. No, it's <laughs> not. There's some funny parts in that movie. I want the knife. Please. Wow. Yeah, you see, Norbit is <laughs> listed at nine. Damn light. Norbit is 9% along with Beverly Hills Cop 3. Wow. That's like just. I said, there's, there's nothing. There's by nothing the way, like- just 5% higher than Pluto Nash. <laughs> Well, I mean, that's, that's as I said. There's nothing you can look at that would tell you you should watch this film. All I can say is it's funny. That's three the po- only, the three, only endorsement I can. I'm give gonna it. watch three. Three points better than Vampire in Brooklyn. Yeah, Steve, I get it. But anyway, 
<laughs> get it, buddy. I get it. All right, you can stop giving me a Pretty sure example. you made your point, you douche. <laughs> you can move on now. Uh, it's funny. You horrible human being. It's funny because it's true. <laughs> Double O S A. <laughs> I'm just upset that I did not see Clue. I don't. I thought I did. I, Clue's funny. You haven't Clue, seen Clue? Clue works. I, don't, I like oh. never saw it. You can watch all three of its endings, and they all are terrible. Really? Oh, brother. Meh. Now you're now you're midnight Latham. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Hassan, be careful. That's trademark. <laughs> That's right. You're treading on trademark territory. <laughs> yeah, I apologize. All I'll right. black hat myself. Here yeah, you go. Yeah, there you That's go. That's for me. Yeah. <laughs> now, now, now you truly have done it. You black hat everybody, including yourself. <laughs> Yeah, he uh, <clears throat> he's done some bad stuff. <laughs> Just not. Fortunately, our show is not about Eddie Murphy tonight, everyone. But now you know. <laughs> no, I was talking about Jonathan Lynn. Oh, well, they're both awful. Apparently, no, the appar- apparently the big thing he's known for is some British TV series called Yes, Prime Minister. Yep, that's I've heard. About it would be funny if the big thing he was known for was some British TV series yeah. called some British TV series. <laughs> <laughs> that would be funny. Yes, honestly, I mean, my cousin Vinny does not rely upon directorial finesse to be what it is. It's story structure and performance. For sure, for sure, true, very true. I agree. And we, we've, isn't, we've, isn't already given, we've already given credit to the writer. Isn't the director an integral part of pulling that off, though? Well, yeah. Well, there, I, think if, I think if the script is, is phenomenal and the actors are phenomenal, there's a certain amount of don't get in their way yep. um, and be competent. And if the guy knows how to, how to point a camera correct, correctly <laughs> and pick his, his images, he's probably going to get away with it. Right. I I mean I I kind of agree with that. Kind of teaches me a little something about uh, directing a little bit. I I find the idea of directing pretty intimidating. But uh, but you guys are saying it's easy. I'm kidding. That's not what you're saying. No, I, I mean, no what I'm what I'm saying is is that uh, um, if that story was that tight and he stuck to the script, and I don't think anybody is going to say, even though his his resume is not awesome. We haven't analyzed his his camera work, his cho- you know his choice of angles, uh, his cinematic technique. So if he's competent at those things, and he's just bad at picking scripts, ah, oh then, yeah, oh you you're now you're talking about uh, then he could have got lucky and got a phenomenal that's script, right? And that's why all his other stuff is, and he could have just been honestly, he could have just been doing the other stuff for paychecks. Scott, thank you very much for uh, for coming and hanging. Absolutely, out guys. Us. Thanks for the invite. Seriously, this was a blast. Yeah, please come back on, Scott. I'm glad you have a good time. We'll, uh, yeah, we'll, yeah we'll definitely have you back, and you can pick two more movies and uh, vex. Uh, you know, any any chance that Latham gets to knock movies off his master list of films that he hasn't seen, uh, he's always very happy about. So two more out of that book. Welcome experience. <laughs> the, the movies go. to watch, but we'll, he's a. You, you guys haven't known Latham as long as I have, but uh, Latham is a, a the master lists guy. He has uh, <laughs> lists and things organized to a, a crazy extent. Look at that. There's the Warriors nice. crossed off right there. Babe. Crossed off. Wind of the Lion. Wes Craven's nice. new nightmare, John. John Williams, movie. pick like one. 
anyone. Well, anyone <laughs> the one where he does the, the music for it. <laughs> Top of the world, ma. <laughs> oh my God. So funny. Awesome. Thanks, Thank guys. You. All right, Scott. Thank you, Scott. Have a great night. Peace. And Later. 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 Thanks to FesleyandMusic.com. Please check out our website at CinementalPod.com for all the poster images we discuss in our Down the Tube segments. And don't forget to download, subscribe to Cinemental wherever you enjoy your podcasts. You can always listen to new episodes at CinementalPod.com. Also, you can enjoy us on all major social media accounts at CinementalPod. For Hassan Godwin, Latham Conger III, Scott Klein, and myself, we all say thank you so much for listening. And as always, in the words of our friend and fellow gang member, Truman Burbank. <laughs> good afternoon, good evening, and good night. Uh, and we're out. And we're out. <laughs>